High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, um, I just thought I'd tell you about this public services card. Um, I'm going for my new driving license today. And um, to compare it to the past, it's quite interesting. I'm going to bring my public services card, so all they have all my information, so I presume I'm going to get my driving license fairly quickly. Second thing is to make an appointment. So I'll now rock up there at the driving license centre at a particular time, and they'll look after me, and I'll get it all done. Now, the extraordinary thing is here is one uh, side of dealing with the public service. Who, who you, you get there, you're at, you have an appointment, it gets done, and everything. When I went for my public services card in the first place, they gave me an appointment, I went there, and I got it done. Why is it so difficult, therefore, for the public service to create uh, a methodology by which the same thing can happen in everything else? And the biggest offenders in this regard, and we're going to see the worst examples of it on the program today are where particularly mothers are trying to get help for children on almost any front. Uh, they have to wait for a diagnosis. And without a diagnosis, they cannot get the help they require for their children. But of course, the point is, by the time they've got through the whole waiting list system, it's too late. Uh, the child isn't three years of age anymore. The child is now six years of age. And the diagnosis that maybe could have helped at three years of age has now waited until six. Why can we not get a diagnosis done in the same way as a driving license? You may say, no, no, George can't be done. Yes, it can be done. It can be done by organization and planning and having a strategy. Anyway, that's my six penny worth. I'm far more interested, of course, um, in my beloved Fine Gael, as Pat Kenny rightly surmised this morning. I'm wearing a blue shirt to celebrate um, my uh, fate in the great party. I'm joined by No Rock. Now, No Rock is a Fine Gael TD for Dublin Northwest, but there's a councillor called Brian Murphy uh, who has sent tweets out like, this is some of the things he's done. We should learn from the terrible mistakes of our European neighbours and not make the same mistakes in this country. Uh, I make no apology for not wanting my country to become a more dangerous place to live. I just don't want to see my country make the same mistakes as France, Sweden, Belgium, etc., with numerous no-go zones and Sharia law enclaves. Now, that's the kind of stuff Councillor Brian Murphy, who's a Fine Gael councillor, has been putting out. Fine Gael, of course, have now gone bananas, and uh, carrying his own share of bananas is uh, Deputy No Rock. Uh, good afternoon, George. I, I think the worry for you is, is this fellow Murphy out in uh, Dublin Northwest and you're worrying about him chipping at your heels? <laughs> no, Lord, no. He's uh, a councillor in Dundrum on, on the south of the city, so he, he's far away from me geographically and indeed far away from me in terms of his point of view as well. But what are you going to do to him? And tolerant party. And these views are anything but. And I think we need to be very clear that Brian Murphy's views are not on behalf of the Fine Gael Party and, in fact, go against the grain of a great many councillors, TDs and senators. All right, what are you going to do to him? Are you going to, um, like if he was in Dolair and presumably you would draw the whip or whatever, are you going to kick him out of the party, are you? I don't know, and it's certainly not my uh, my capacity to do so. What I have done in my capacity as a TD for the party 
is I have sent a formal letter of complaint to our party headquarters. It's then up to them and our executive council to make a decision uh, on okay. uh, Councillor Murphy's status within the party. But certainly, make no mistake, bro- uh, George, I want your listeners to know that this is not the view of Fine Gael whatsoever. Now, uh, hold a while, Councillor Rock. Hold a while now, right? Did I hear you say, because the, the phone just stopped for a second, did you use the word inclusive in your opening sentence? Correct. Well, be inclusive then. Have people in your party of different points of view. Absolutely. And, well, you know, fine. Uh, let, let poor old Murphy alone. And if he has views which represent a substantial percentage, I suggest, of the Irish population, uh, maybe a minority, but I reckon it's substantial, who have concerns about uncont- uh, uncontrolled immigration, he represents them, so let him represent them. Uh, Councillor Murphy might have views, and he's entitled to air those views, but if I think that they are dumb views, I am also entitled to say that they're dumb views. And Correct. frankly, George, these are dumb. Um, you know, there is no way that anybody in a representative position should be putting forward this kind of point of view that excludes people. He, uh, Councillor Murphy would have constituents of all sorts of backgrounds and classes and creeds, and they are as entitled to be represented by him as anybody else, George. And I think that's the kind of the central nub of the point. And, you know, when the Taoiseach was elected, uh, he said that, uh, you know, uh, prejudice had no hold in this republic. Let me quote you something, can I? Uh, This is a quote, direct quote. There is one thing that Germany did, and that was to rout the Jews out of their country. Until we rout the Jews out of this country, it does not matter a hair's breadth what orders you make. Where there are bees, there is honey. Where there are Jews, there is money. That is the maiden speech of a Fine Gael TD, Oliver Flanagan. uh, And so, Fine Miguel's escutcheon on matters of inclusive isn't isn't uh, all clean. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the the gentleman who you quoted there was some two generations before I was born, and you know, like we said earlier on, George, people are entitled to air their views, and uh, there were different mores and tastes at that particular point in time in our society. If that speech was given today, I imagine it would be roundly condemned by everybody in the house. And rightly so. Yeah, but the point is, you're saying in one breath where you're inclusive, in another breath, you're you're saying that people are entitled to their views. And then, as soon as Councillor Murphy expresses a view that you don't like, or even the majority of Fine Gael uh, elected members, TDs, and councillors don't like, the the guy comes under fire. Well, not at all. No, uh, like I said, and like you've agreed with earlier on in the interview. He is entitled to put forward his point of view. There's no issue there. The issue is with what he's saying as a representative of the people and as a public representative. Uh, And it's my entitlement and my right to put forward a complaint about that Um, because there are 73 members of the parliamentary party and about 200 councillors across the country. And what he's saying does not represent their point of view. And what people could walk away thinking is that this is a Fine Gael position, which it's absolutely not a Fine Gael position. You know, we espouse inclusivity, and we espouse tolerance, and we espouse a modern all right, okay, all right, that's fantastic. So I'm thrilled. You're inclusive <laughs> and you're all that sort of good stuff. And, you know, your heart bleeds for uh, the migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean and you want to give them a home and a warm bed to sleep in. You might you might tell me uh, how many of these poor misfortunates a Fine Gael government has currently brought into this country and how that compares with the amount they've agreed with Europe to take. 
Uh, it's a good question. I don't have the most recent figures at hand. Um, certainly, we have done our part uh, when it compares to figures in countries like Germany. Uh, it's certainly quite a small figure we've taken in. But, but nevertheless, we are grappling with domestic problems here at home as well, George. And, you know, you know this well as a broadcaster. We have huge crises across our, our health sector and across <laughs> oh, housing. Um, oh. So, you know... Sorry, Councillor Rock. Sorry, Councillor Rock. You've been a bit predictable this morning. I would remind you that you are now quoting almost verbatim from Taoiseach Sandy Kenny's view when asked, what are we going to do about the migrant crisis? He said, well, we have terrible problems at home, so we'll deal with the migrant crisis eventually. Like, But if a Hungarian Premier said that, if an Austrian Austrian Premier said that, which they did, you, it, it, this all-inclusive Fine Gael will go bananas and say those those dastardly Austrians and Hungarians. You know, you know, what you're basically saying is, we'll deal with the migrants tomorrow. What? Ah, don't, don't be putting words in my mouth. But that's what I mean, you said. Not at all. No, what I mean, did we, you say? We've played our part. We've taken our share of migrants. How many uh, is your share? Again, I, I can't tell you the figure off the top of my head, but I certainly know many have been housed in Roscommon, for example. Many have been housed in Leitrim, uh, Sligo. You know, we're doing our part uh, at a difficult time for us still, where we're grappling with a lot of other crises. And, you know, it's about trying to manage simultaneous crises, you know, uh, altogether, be it right. housing, well, health, homeless. Okay, well, let's give you another one, uh, Deputy Rock. I mean, and, and now one of the, one of the tweets that Councillor Murphy made, he said that there are women in Germany, and there certainly would be in Cologne, I imagine, who next Christmas or next New Year's Eve might not head off near the train station for view of mass sexual assault by migrants. Now, I suggest that uh, when Councillor Murphy says, I don't want the women of Ireland, to be afraid to go down to Houston Station for fear of a sexual molestation, he would strike a chord. I mean, you know, Germany is awfully far away to be trying to espouse expertise and views about the domestic situation there and about how migration is affecting uh, people and young women there in particular. You know, as a councillor, I think he'd be better served and his constituency would be better served if he focused on matters in Dundrum. Uh, similarly, I think my constituency would be better served if I focused on matters within Ballymond, Finglas, etc., as opposed to talking about uh, Germany, where our expertise does not lie. Um, so I think, you know, that's part of my difficulty with a lot of these views that he's espousing as well. He's talking about the migrant experience in Belgium, Germany, France, etc., etc., uh, but obviously would have no expertise in these matters. All we can comment on is the refugee experience in Ireland, uh, integration in Ireland, immigration in Ireland. And I think rather than criticising other countries, we should be putting our shoulder to the wheel and trying to make sure that experience is better in this country. But, of course, you do, I mean, you, you can't possibly suggest you're trying to make it bigger when the number of people is a bagatelle in the context of the total number of uh, migrants who might be here. But, I mean, if Deputy Rock, and you've made much play uh, about the issues that we face here in Ireland, if, if the people who were without homes uh, and the thousands of children living in hotels, if something was happening by about them, and you could say, listen, sorry about the migrants, but we're looking after the children in the hotels, then you'd get a pretty warm welcome from this broadcaster. But in fact, you're failing as dismally on, on housing as you are on migrants. 
Yeah, and you know, this is a challenge that we're grappling with, and that's taking time, obviously, George. And as has been pointed out, yes, people are being housed at a faster rate, but simultaneously, unfortunately, people are becoming homeless at a faster rate as well. So the overall numbers are going up. That's regrettable. That's shameful. Minister Murphy is devoting himself day and night to fixing that problem. Uh, and I have hope and faith that he will fix that problem. Right. In Dublin Northwest, we have over 1,500 houses under construction or planning applications right now. If we can continue that and replicate that across the country, we'll be flying. All right, but it, finally, you can't be cribbing about a councillor tweeting when the Taoiseach rivals Donald Trump in the tweeting stakes. Yeah, and rivals yourself as well, George. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a man who uses a few minutes of downtime each day or night to put out a few thoughts on the day. And that's and all that's Councillor not, Murphy's doing. Yeah, indeed. And what I'm saying is that I don't agree with those views, and those views run the risk of looking like official Fine Gael policy. They're not official Fine Gael policy, and as such, they should be reviewed by Fine Gael. And I think that, you know, Councillor Murphy will, will be better to spend his time perhaps focusing on issues within right. the Dundrum constituency. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. That's the Fine Gael TD for Dublin Northwest. Um, one, no rock. He's one of the new young Turks in Fine Gael, um, who have, of course, come into politics in the recent past. Hey, your thoughts are... Uh, uh, getting uh, plenty of airtime here on the text machine. Uh, I don't want to preclude anybody, George, but I want to live in Ireland, not enclaves of different laws and society. There's some truth in what Councillor Murphy says, George, PC, Finial, as usual. Uh, George, you'll find Councillor Murphy's views are what most Irish people fear about the future of this country. We don't want to blindly take anybody into the country. And then there is another one which says, George has well and truly lost the plot. He is seriously suffering the effects of old age. Do the right thing, News Talk. Let him go. Well, I can't let myself go. Uh, somebody will have to drag me kicking and screaming away from the microphone. But texter, I will pass your text on to the appropriate uh, department which deals with hiring and firing. So if my dulcet tones aren't on the air at 12 o'clock tomorrow, you'll know what uh, uh, is the case. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, of course, we're used to the National Treatment Purchase Fund, uh, where people who are delayed getting a new hip or knee are able to go to another jurisdiction and get it done in the private system, and the government here will pay for it. That's not the case, of course, um, with all illnesses or diseases or conditions. I'm joined in the studio now by Terence Cosgrave of Cosgrave Communications, and I'm going to talk to him in just a moment. But before I do, my other guest is Michelle McKeever. Michelle, welcome to the programme. Hello. Why are you here? <laughs> well, just to chat to you. <laughs> well, I like it very much. Uh, but you have experience of, of working with the HSE, as in, as in a customer, how you deal with them. Yes, I have a little boy called Ronan. Um, he's now seven years old and he was given an autism diagnosis when he was three. Um, I had known from very early on, from before Ronan was one, really, that we had we had problems. We struggled as a family, emotionally, mentally. Um, I suppose that limbo stage from when you notice your child's different to the actual stage where you get a diagnosis is a very long and hard journey. Um 
the only way I can des- describe it is that as a, from a parent's point of view is that you're lost um, until you actually get a diagnosis there's nobody there to help well, the first thing is mothers would know, wouldn't yeah. they? So, therefore, I'm sure mothers of, of autistic children or mothers yeah. of children with any kind of difficulties, but particularly mental illness, they know before anybody. And it doesn't matter how many doctors come in and tell them exactly, one thing, yeah. mother knows best. And, yeah. and that's been the way it is mm-hmm. for millennia. All right. Um, now, you get a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. We don't have a cure here. For no. autism. So therefore, one presumes as a parent, and I'm mm-hmm. lucky enough I never had that experience, mm-hmm. but I can only imagine. What you're now looking for is support, help, and most importantly, with a child with autism, one imagines, mm-hmm. is special educational help, for exactly, instance. Yes. So you might tell me the journey on those, mm-hmm. in, in those regards. Um, it, it's difficult because unless it's very hard to get the right help or to be directed in the right direction unless you actually do have a, a label or a diagnosis. So in that stage prior to that, you're really just going from pillar to post with no real direction. That's to be on. That's my. my yeah. Well, remind me how old Ronan was when he got a diagnosis. He was three. So what happened? So mm-hmm. are you suggesting therefore that suddenly at three, all sorts of doors opened for him? Mm-hmm. Did they? Um, not really. No, he okay. was in a crash. But again, for me to go out and work, you know, he, I needed a crash, you know, for, for to look after him. But they couldn't meet his needs. You know, they, of course, they, understandably, you know, they, understandably, yeah. they don't didn't have the training or the resources to meet his needs. So it was very hard to direct who was best going to look after. Ronan and to, to allow us to function as a family and you know support. so how old is Ronan now he's seven so what's happened in the intervening four years um, we actually found um, an organization in America called the Family Hope Center um, we I attended their parent training it was a three-day parent training and it, in the USA no they actually came to Ireland were invited okay. over by um, a local physiotherapist Phelan O'Neill and I went along I suppose in that, you know, state of where do I go from here or what do I do? And I just found found the information that they provided was extraordinary. It, it, it made me understand what was actually going on inside Ronan's brain and how I could help him and encourage him to develop to become the best of his ability. You know. Now, people listening to your accent will realise that you come from a hundred miles or so north <laughs> of Dublin. But what it does mean, I presume, because you live in the north, you're yeah. you're working with the British medical services mm-hmm. as opposed to the the HSE in the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. I, I mean, is it better? In your view, I mean, do they do things that you found that were really good, or are parents of autistic children, whether they're in in Ireland, Britain, or or America, do they just get a hard time? Is that really what we're talking about? I think boundaries aside, you know, wherever you're from, whenever your child is given a diagnosis, there isn't a certain amount of early intervention that that commences. But we have, as a parent of a child it's the longevity you're I'm looking at my child's lifespan not in the early years so how do I get him to the best of his ability through to the next stage of his life you know it's not just you know in a couple of years you know you get early intervention for a while and then they'd go to school and then that's it but I I don't think there's enough 
Okay. No. So why are you talking to me then? Um, I just want to explain to parents that there is more out there. Um, there is, I found where I was powerless to help him. I now feel empowered by the information that I... But that was information you gained in the USA. Yes. I mean, it came to Ireland, yes, but it, it was to, the yes. USA. Yes. Uh, but that was, you went, you presumably individually had to search for it. You I came did, across yeah. them mm-hmm. and, you know, contact was made and so on. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're really saying, am I right in yeah. saying that in other jurisdictions outside mm-hmm. this island, yes. there are better services provided for parents with autistic children? Well, it's a service that the empower the parent to help the child they're not in my living room every day helping me yes you know but they've trained me in what to do and 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 monitor me and and keep in constant contact with me more so than i would get had i been going down the hsc route or you know um that's i suppose what you would what i've got more and they're constantly monitoring ronan on a six monthly basis and improving at every stage and Okay. Uh, Turn to Cosgrave, Cosgrave Communications. I mean, what's your role in this? Because obviously you're a communicator, but you're obviously passionate about the the issue of autism. What's what's your position here? Well, it's not just autism, George. It's mental health in general. And uh, the position is that there are, you know, 2,500 children waiting for mental health services in Ireland. Uh, At least um, they're waiting. um, uh, Some of them are waiting up to a year. If they get their initial assessment, which is just a meeting with somebody, just just a chance to talk to somebody in authority, it, it can then be up to another year before they actually get treatment again from the child and adolescent mental health services. So my point is this. If you can go and get Bulgarian teeth and Lithuanian limbs, if the government will pay, pay for that, and there's a service here for children that they need right now, they don't need a two-year two year review it in two years' time and there'll be a policy put in. They need something right now. You can't get it. <clears throat> there's no one to talk to. They won't even engage with you. It's like mental illness in children does not exist. They have no... no stop there. Like, you're a communicator, so you know what you're saying. You know, uh, many people say things and they're not sure what to say, but you choose your words carefully because that's your business. You're a professional. You say they will not engage with you. There is nobody to talk to. What does that mean? I think it means that the, there isn't the activism from particularly from parents, from groups, because children with mental health problems, the children, the parents are so involved in trying to help them on a one-to-one basis. Uh, they're, they're tied up with it. The problem will go away with time. Now, it may get worse. The child may be institutionalised. Uh, but the child, the ch- a children's development at the age of, say, four, or in Roland's case, at the age of three, that age between three and four, that year will never come back while you're sitting at home waiting for the HSE just to have an initial appointment to assess you. This is the problem. If you, if you, if it was, look, let's put this way, George. If this was a drug, if Michelle had gone and gotten a drug, let's call it drug number 13. If there was a drug out there being manufactured by a pharma company and it was called drug 13 and it cured her son, we would not be having this conversation. Correct. There is a point here, which I don't know, but I'm asking you. Um, the, the issue, and Michelle has put it so well, really, um, that you, until you get assessment, you're going nowhere. Is there money involved here? In other words, if I'm, I, I have a person of means, can I get my child privately assessed uh, as opposed to somebody who is waiting for the, for the HSE? Well, George, you know that when the market fails, people enter the market in a private capacity, and that's what's happened here. 
The Family Hope Centre can come all the way from America to provide these services here to Irish parents and their children because there simply isn't anything like it. Uh, Michelle will tell you the difference in her life, and I'd like to ask about the, the difference in her life, the difference in parents' life by getting some... Uh, improvement, something happening with their child, some hope, if you like, mm-hmm. that their child can can live something closer to a normal life, will, and and that they can be involved in and right. see improvement. But you, that's not available okay. here. But you mentioned Bulgarian teeth and Lithuanian limbs, right? Mm. You know, it was the National Treatment Purchase Fund. You can go somewhere else to get it if yes. you're at the end of a queue. You can't get it in the case of mental illness. Are you advocating that the Department of Health should fund? Uh, people with mental illness or their children with a mental illness should fund them going abroad to get the service that is unavailable here. Is that the proposal? I don't know if going abroad would be would be would be sustainable, but certainly if if people are here providing services, then they should be supported in that. Uh, I mean, with with parents and children going abroad back and forward, it's not really a, a way yes. you can deliver it. But if the services being provided in Ireland, they should certainly provide some money to people to provide services now. Let's take it this way. We've got these 2,500 children. Let's just take 50 million because, you know, Georgian government, so 50 million is nothing. That would be 20 grand for each child. You know, surely we could pay somebody a grand to get them an assessment right now. Pay some psychiatrist, get there you go, there's a grand. Now we've got 19 left to still have the child now today. Not when the child is 5 or 6 or 10 or 12, right now. So, I mean, it's a question of just having the, the gut, first of all, the realism to look at this and say, there's a real issue here. It's a serious issue for parents and children. It needs to be dealt with now, well, not it, by it, reports. It, it, but we do know this in a different way. Because many of us, in some shape or form, uh, not a year passes that I'm not involved with a fundraiser for a child. Not a year passes. And, and it's not mental illness. The child is something else. Right, the child can't walk, or child can't talk, or the child can't do something, and we are raising fifty, sixty, a hundred thousand in order that child can go somewhere else, which is invariably America. The child goes to America, and a miracle happens. Yeah. They then walk, they then talk, they then have an improvement, um, and this we what what. The result of what we're talking about here, what Joe's saying is that in relation to our treatment of mental health and the parents, of particularly of children with autism and, and, and alloyed uh, illnesses, we're a third world country, is what you're saying. Pretty, well, I don't see any services there because I, don't, I think if, they, if you have to wait as long as you do have in Ireland for the services, then they might as well not be there at all. There's no point in treating a three-year-old as a six-year-old. There's no point. You've lost three years. It, it, it's, it's, it's negligent. I mean, that's, it would be medically negligent if you were doing it as a medical professional to say, I'll come back to you in three years. When, when at that developmental stage, when so much has happened, so much has been done. In, the, in Michelle's case, in the case of many other parents, Michelle was dealing with a child that couldn't walk, that wasn't communicating, that never looked at his father, never smiled at his father, never held him. Imagine the disruption in the home for that. This child came along, then they came toilet trained at the age of 12, which changed Michelle and, and Paul's life. Uh, he started reacting to his father. I mean, these are wonderful things that cannot, that they're no good happening at 18. They need to happen now. Uh, of course, there is a danger if mothers act, uh, become activists in relation uh, to their children that the chief executive of the HSE may describe them as emotional terrorists. Uh, the HSE does not take kindly uh, to criticism of its services by mothers. Well, this service, I, this service doesn't exist. I mean, this this service is a 
it's the ultimate, you know, revolving door. You you can't get anything. By the time you get this to yeah. the services, so much time has passed. So there needs to be an urgency here. And whatever kind of, you know, I mean, like I say, George, if this was a drug that could yeah. be bought and paid for for 50, 60, 100 million, we wouldn't have this conversation. We just give them the drug. What we're doing here is 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 a bit more modern. It involves teaching and training. Now, not, what the Family Hope Centre do is not for everybody. But what they do basically is they train the parents to put in a lot of time and work okay. and that allows that kind of care that the parents then can then give the children allows them to develop in ways that wouldn't be possible with any kind of professional care. All right, my thanks to my guests, Terence Cosgrave of Cosgrave Communications and particularly to you, Michelle, Michelle McKeever, uh, and we heard about us on Ron. Thank you so much for coming uh, and sharing your story because the story from somebody like you is so much more meaningful. Thank you very much. Thank you. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Well, um, at the moment, Brexit is being debated uh, in the Houses of Parliament and will be debated a lot of days for months to come, nay, years. But the European chief negotiator, on the other hand, uh, Michel Barnier, you would have heard on the news, but he says in relation to Northern Ireland, we're not there yet. And then he went on to say uh, what he has seen from the United Kingdom worries him. He says the UK wants to have a border arrangement that ignores customs union and single market rules. That will not happen, he says. I think it's not just the British are ignoring customs union and single market rules and think they can do it. I think Leo, Leo Varadkar, Simon Coveney, Uncle Tom Cobley and all uh, in Irish politics think that the European Union are going to roll over and give us a special deal. Well, you couldn't have failed uh, on your television to see horrific pictures of one of the most powerful hurricanes ever recorded over the actual, over the Atlantic Ocean. It's battering almost as we speak at the moment. Baruda, uh, which in which has suffered 95% damage. The island has literally been flattened. St. Martin, Puerto Rico, and it's now moving west. It's heading towards first Haiti and then Florida. Um, Florida will obviously have infrastructure in the uh, benighted uh, country of Haiti. There isn't very much. And uh, the great charity Haven has been working down there for about 10 years. And I'm joined now by the former country director for Haven, John Moore. John, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, John, um, we, and particularly you, because you've lived and worked in Haiti with the charity, um, it's been bad. First of all, a hurricane, or uh, sorry, a, an earthquake arrives. Then a hurricane arrives. Every time they seem to be getting on their feet, another natural disaster strikes. What are your fears this time? Oh, George, we, we're worried, all right. We're worried for our people and our communities that we have worked in. Um, it, it's, it's, as you say, it's one of the biggest hurricanes ever in the region. And it's heading towards uh, Haiti at the moment. Probably will arrive in the next three or four hours. It's beginning to turn away slightly uh, at the moment. Hopefully, um, it, 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 it'll keep turning. We're, our fear, of course, will be uh, the strong winds and the heavy rains will will cause lots of problems, lots of flooding. Flooding will be their biggest problem. Um, 
the winds in the north, it's packing the north, obviously, so that's where we will have the structural damage. The south mightn't get it as much, but it, it will get the flooding and the rain. Which yeah. will, as you know, Haiti, everything will wash down towards the, the, the cities and the roads and the towns, and you know there'll be enormous damage done. Yeah, I mean, John, for for people in our listening who are used to drainage, there is in fact no drainage in in Haiti, so the water just runs down the road. I mean, I've been there when it's just heavy rain pretty well, yes. and the water's run down the road. The people are living under tarpaulin or whatever, living by the side of the road. The rain and the water then goes to the, the easiest place, and that very often is literally into the homes of the people. So before we ever get, as you say, high wind, the water alone is going to cause enormous damage. Oh, it will, George. And as you say, it's rivers running down the road. Uh, even with just heavy rain, never mind what's going to happen with the hurricane. Um, all they can do is, 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 is sit and wait, and that's what they're doing at the moment. They've got to try and get the few possessions that they have uh, to higher ground and, uh, and, and save them and uh, try and mind their homes. Uh, our guys have been meeting with the local mayors and the CPC, that's the civil protection committees, uh, to try and support them, making sure they have food and water in, in, uh, in case it does come heavy on them and, uh, and try and keep safe. Um, you know, you'll have houses with, uh, that will be washed away. You'll have houses that will have three and four feet of water inside them. And, you know, it's, uh, it's par for the course for Haiti. Um, I suppose you could say we're kind of used to it, but it is par for the course. They will, they will suffer for the next few hours and the next few days. And in the few days' time, they'll be back up again. Uh, very resilient people, and they start putting their lives back together as best they can. Yeah, but John, John Moore, by the way, talking to me, he's former country manager for the charity Haven that works in Haiti. John, we use the word houses, of course, people like you and I who've spent time down there, we use the word houses kind of loosely. There's a huge number of people, uh, could be up to a million people, who live in effect in temporary accommodation under tarpaulin to all intents and purposes. So, like, they're not going to stand a chance under wind and rain conditions. No, that's for sure, George. They will be washed out of it. And so will even the, the, the more, the more uh, solid homes, even, which are not very solid, that we would be used to. They're going to have the same thing. You know, they're going to, go, they're going to have to leave where they are. Um, they're going to have to go into schools and churches and community centres to try and get shelter and then report back to their homes and, their, and, and what they call homes, their tarpaulins or their tents, and see is it still there or, you know, they just gather up what they can and save it. It's, it's, it's an awful existence um, that only people who have been there, like you've been there many a time, uh, and you understand it and you know what the, uh, the pressure is like for those people down there. And it's, it's horrific, yeah. you know. John, we are talking about one of the poorest nations on earth. Um, so therefore, um, when you talk about like infrastructure or you talk about where Haven, the charities talking to mayors or committees or whatever, in, in a, in a modern, uh, country, uh, um, a Western country, that means that there's jeeps and fire engines and, you know, all the things we take for granted. 
those things by and large are non-existent in Haiti. So the people are the people of Haiti, and and they're living. John, you might give people an idea. Haiti is about the size of Munster, isn't it? Or slightly? That's right. Yeah, yeah not much bigger than Munster. And how many people? ten to twelve million people in it. Right. Um, so you have 12 million people in in, yeah. in an area the size of Munster, um, yeah. and they they have little or no infrastructure. Uh, I mean, even things, John, that, like, you can't talk about roads in Haiti in the way no. we talk about roads. Not at all. There, there are a few roads in Haiti, all right. Um but as you say, you you can't talk. You couldn't call them roads. Um, there's a bit of tarmac down, and it's you get from maybe the big city to a big town. That then you have to go. Even in even in Port-au-Prince itself, the city, you go off the main thoroughfare, and you're just onto dirt roads, uh, serving you know all all the people up there. There's no drainage. There's uh, you, you buy in your water and you store it in tanks or in underground uh, cellars or whatever. Um, that's the only way you can get it. You have to buy it. Uh, and that is that's par for the course there. You know, there's no you 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 use latrines, you use septic tanks. There are no no drainage systems of any sort. There are some canals where the rainwater goes to. By and large, they they will be they will be flooded, but they'll also be full of debris. We saw the water except onto the roads and back into the houses. Now, you know, John, um, you're very kind to say I've been there, but I, but I mean I get in and get out like I'm just a fancy dandy visitor you know uh, yeah. a, a number of times but I've been there half a dozen times so I understand what it's like you've worked there you've lived there you've you've worked cheek by jowl with these people to give them a better life um, we've been there uh, before the hur- before the earthquake then we were there after the earthquake we were there before the hurricane the last hurricane then we were there after we saw the incredible devastation devastation done to people. I mean, I, even talking to you now, um, my, my heart bleeds for these people in Haiti. Yeah, and yeah, and ours too, you know, and we're, we're a small charity down there working as best we can in the communities we work with and trying to improve those communities. Um, and, and I think we do, George, you know, I, I, have, I have great faith in the people of Haiti. Um, they've been new president sincerely in the year and he, he's making the right uh, noises at the moment, so hopefully things will improve for him. Um, and the, the local communities we ha- that Haven works in, uh, we're doing a lot of training, uh, and a lot of farming. We're giving them skills. We're hoping that they can, you know, they can earn some money and, and improve their yeah. lives. And we improve their homes for them. And we, we're trying to give them toilets and water, and we're drilling wells, and you know, all of that sort of stuff to try and support them. Um, and you know, that's as much as we can do at the moment. And yeah, the other thing, John, which I don't know how much protection it gives in, in relation to a hurricane, but for many countries, like, there's forestry, and those trees would give some kind of protection, but the Haitians over the centuries burned down all the trees for charcoal, um, for heat and so on. There literally isn't a tree in Haiti, isn't that so? That's for sure, George. There's a lot of uh, areas that have very little uh, trees of any sort. And every time you have a heavy rain, everything washes down. But again, you know, we're, we're, we're planting trees and so are a lot of other organizations in Haiti planting trees and we're supporting people to plant trees. And it's the only way where it's, 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 it's slow, uh, it, it's methodical and you have to try and get it done. Um, but you're right. There are a lot of the trees cut down. People have cut them down and 
it wasn't just the, the local people who cut them down to a lot of stuff was, you know, like the sugar things and everything was for export and all of that sort of thing. You know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of answers, uh, questions to answer, not just the Haitian people themselves. There are bigger countries outside there, as you know, you know, you can talk about the, the French and the British and the Spanish and all of them, if you want to go back uh, years and years and years and talk about it. But right. they have, you know, they, they, they have... You know, they have been abused over the over for, for hundreds of years and, you know, and they're fighting back themselves now and hoping, you know, to make life better for themselves and their children, you know. All right. And, uh, you know. Thanks, John. I appreciate it very much. That's uh, the former country uh, director in Haiti from Haven, John Moore, uh, an extraordinary man. I, I saw him work down there, the work he did. It's interesting that um, in uh, Ascension Martinez, his deputy country director at Save the Children in Port-au-Prince, now he said Haitians are ill-equipped to deal with the impact of a major uh, hurricane. There are people who are poor and vulnerable and have nothing to fall back on. If a crop is wiped out, if the house is flooded, they do what most people do here in Haiti, which is to start again. It's an extraordinary tragedy uh, in one of the poorest countries in the world. We were talking about Councillor Murphy of Finnegal, who's worried about unrestricted immigration, and uh, the Finnegalers are going mad because they think they're such an inclusive party. Uh, but the listeners are different. Um, uh, Councillor Murphy is saying, well, most Irish people fear George. Deputy Rock probably hopes for promotion in the next reshuffle. No problem with these people coming in, but don't heap them all together. Look at the ghettos in the United Kingdom. Luton, Bradford, Sheffield says, Liam, Rock is only a snowflake. We're talking snowflakes after one o'clock. On the issue uh, of uh, the assessment for children uh, with autism, a listener says HSE won't assess until the child is three. However, watch this space, the listener says. There's a solution coming. Uh, that listener will be happy to talk to me about what well, we'd be happy to talk to you do. And no listener says, my son is ADHD, and we got him privately assessed. It was a revelation and unlocked help. Worth anything to get this done. I tell you, if you have the money in Ireland, you can get anything. If you don't have the money, and you rely on, on the state, a state that is now a 100 years in existence, it was founded on a belief in the equality of its citizens, has failed them. All right. And uh, somebody's sister has a degree in psychotherapy, but can't work with the HSE because since she started her degree, they changed the qualifications for their counselling post. You now need a nursing degree in addition to your psychotherapy degree to get a counselling job. Listen. Uh, don't talk to me about the HSE. They give me a pain in the portion of my anatomy that I usually use uh, for sitting on or talking through. Well, up next, we're talking snowflakes. Just outside my studio, Karen Devine from Dublin City University with a, a breastplate like the great feminists of ancient Britain is ready to come in with her sword held aloft. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.
It's um, High Noon with George. I'm delighted to welcome my favourite feminist in the studio, lecturer at the School of Law and Government in Dublin City University, Karen Devine. Dr. Devine? Thank you very much for having me on the show, George. I'm delighted. Um, the, 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 why I asked you was that at Oxford University, they're in trauma because um, a lecturer uh, made a comment about... Uh, uh, gays and lesbians and so on, and the vice-chancellor, and it's really they're angry about the vice-chancellor more than the lecturer, because the vice-chancellor essentially said, look, stop cribbing about it, do something about it, debate with your lecturer. And now uh, the students have been offered emotional support by the students' union because their poor minds have been damaged by this. Yeah, what she said was, and she was speaking at a conference, and she said, I'd have many conversations with students who say they don't feel comfortable because their professor has expressed views against homosexuality, and they don't feel comfortable being in class with someone who has those views. And she said, my job isn't um, isn't to make you feel comfortable, and education is not about being un- being comfortable, that she's interested in making the students feel uncomfortable. Well, now, you're an educator, yes. right? So wouldn't you agree with that? Before we get to the home phobia yes. now. Like, let's stay with the principle. Absolutely. Wouldn't you agree with the principle of education that it's not to make you feel comfortable? I do, but I think there's a problem with what the uh, Chancellor, the Vice-Chancellor, Professor Louise Richardson has said, because essentially what she's doing is mixing up a situation where a professor has actually voiced views that amount to discrimination in, in a classroom setting. Um, this professor has voiced their personal views. And I'll draw on my own teaching experience as an example. So when I go in and I I, I deliver two modules on the European Union and one of them is to 374 first years and the other one is to about 60 final year students. When I go into the classroom and I'm teaching the European Union, I teach all perspectives on the European Union, good, bad, indifferent. My own personal views on the European Union do not belong in the classroom and they will never be in the classroom. And if students ask my personal opinion, I say, I'm not, my personal opinion doesn't matter. It's about your opinion. But their opinion cannot necessarily be personal, the kind of thing that you might yeah. talk about in a bar right. still. But it has to be backed up by evidence and by literature. And that's what the academic right. classroom setting is about. It's not about exchanging personal viewpoints. Yeah. Isn't the problem here really that he's talking about um, the LBGT community? If he was talking about the Arsenal football team or he was talking about Jews or he was talking about refugees, it would probably be okay. The problem is it's because he's talking about the LBGT community, point one. And then point two, why do they need emotional support? Like they're hurt and they're whatever angry or whatever feelings they have. And now, you know, that we've got to provide a room for them where they can stroke a dog to calm themselves. Well, not quite. What the Students' Union said is that if students are affected by what the professor has said in class, that they can come to the Students' Union and they will support them. Now, in your first question of, well, if it was okay, if it was, if, the, if the professor was professing views on another subject other than LGBTQ 
etc., that that would be okay. But actually, if you're going to touch on things like, um, and, I, and I was listening to the show on the way in, um, and I listened to Michelle, and she talked about her son who had autism, you cannot say things to people if it amounts to discrimination on the grounds of disability, race, gender, right. age, or sexual orientation. Now, okay. now can I just Go answer on. your second question? How did question? I think I'd be able to stop you talking? <laughs> yeah. I give up. Go on, I I'm give gonna up. answer your second question, <laughs> yeah, George, that yeah. you asked, and it's yeah. a great question, so I want to answer it. So you said, like, why did they need emotional support? And here's something that, um, uh, as a feminist, I'm well aware of through my research, that when you experience, um, I suppose, a diminution or comments that, that in a way attack your identity or are very negative towards your identity, whether it's gay, lesbian, bisexual, or whether it's your gender, they amount to what the, the literature calls microaggressions. And if it's consistent, and I think the problem here is that we need to understand the context of Oxford in particular and its educational environment because I lecture to a classroom of between 60 and say 400 students but in Oxford the tutor or professor is in a classroom of two or three students and they are lecturing that student over a number of years so if a student doesn't like my teaching well they probably won't meet me until third year and even then they can choose not to have the course that I teach but in Oxford they really are stuck with someone for a number oh, of years in a small setting okay. but here's let me go back to finish the point about the microaggressions because if it's consistent over time it creates a level of trauma that public health evidence shows can actually lead to quite um, debilitating physical I, conditions. I, you know, I'm delighted you said that. I really am so delighted. I mean, I've already got one text which telling me, you know, I'm displaying early signs of dementia and new stock should sack me immediately. Almost every single day I receive tweets and, and texts abusing me as some ancient, fat, balding old fart who shouldn't be allowed on the radio. Nonsense. So I'm delighted <laughs> to hear that all these microaggressions are affecting me and I'll need it. Well, I won't pat a dog because I'm opposed to patting any kind of dog. But I mean, I'll need emotional support. But News Talk won't give me any emotional support. <laughs> I keep telling them about microaggressions <laughs> and they won't help me. Yeah, you want to make sure that doesn't amount to workplace bullying, George. But as long as it's coming from outside the environment, you probably no, be can okay. I get back to Oxford? Yes. Because you make a very valid point about the tutor and the small number. Very valid. But this is the self-same Oxford that wants to pull down the statues of Rhodes, who actually, I mean, he wasn't a very nice chap all those centuries ago in Africa, but he funded the place. So they're in a building which Rhodes funded, and now they want to pull the statue down because they're offended by a statue. They're offended by the, the ideas that a lecturer might have. I mean... I didn't do much law for accountancy, but the bit I did, the fellow who taught me believed that shooting British soldiers was a good idea because he'd plugged a few himself. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that the university environment, and, and I'm aware of many freshers who are going to start their university career yeah. in, the, in the coming weeks, the university environment is there for students to be able to develop academically, but as well as personal development. And in some ways, if they are in the bracket and most first years, probably four and five first years are aged between, say, 17 and 24, yeah. that's a time where they've left the confines of secondary school, they've left that life behind and their friends. And if they are exploring their sexuality and their sexual orientation, that the university should be a place where they can feel safe and secure in that respect. And that's but, why uh, we have now. Clubs. Yeah, hold on now. That's important. Aren't they going to feed? Because they need emotional support, according to Oxford, right? So let's buy that. The microaggression and they need support. I'm buying all that so far. 
But in the fellow that lectures them happens to be homophobic, okay? And he doesn't like gays. Mm-hmm. Now, aren't they going to enter a world where they are going to meet people who don't like gays? So aren't they better off finding it in first year in university that there are actually people who don't like gays and get on with it sure. and cope with it well, if without this, patting a dog? Sure, if this professor was in the pub and on a bar stool and telling the world about mm. his homophobic views, that's one setting. But there is a power differential in the university setting where this professor is in charge of perhaps admitting students to the courses he's teaching as well as grading the courses he's teaching. And if he expresses these negative homophobic views, this will have a very stressful impact on students of that sexual orientation or perhaps even students without that sexual orientation because then you're thinking, does he also not like, for example, travellers or women or Jews, etc. Because there would have been university lecturers, I'm sure it doesn't happen in DCU, but it has happened in third level education, where um, uh, lecturers have had inappropriate relations with female students, no? Yes. So, I mean, if if I'm one female and he isn't actually bringing me to his apartment, but he's bringing the girl next door to me to his apartment, then I'm clearly going to think, well, she might get a first now and I might get a two-one. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Definitely, and it's not just it would be in any university in yeah. the world that this might happen. And again, you're pointing to a power differential there, but if I can just go back build on your point and go back to the idea of the microaggression and, and, and my point about first years coming into this environment where they need yeah. to be safe in that if you have if you are of a, of a different sexual orientation to the mainstream and you are trying to find yourself as a young person entering the university environment if you have these microaggressions chipping away in a way at your identity and boundaries okay. you're actually more vulnerable to example for sexual assault and you brought that up yeah. that the notion that perhaps there could be yeah. some kind of sexual violence involved or, or, or some yeah. kind of I suppose power over an okay. individual but I love you dearly using the word love in its more general way I love you dearly but of course I disagree entirely with everything you say but here's an interesting one though because this started and probably will finish on the issue of microaggressions towards the LBGT community Okay, and I have no problem discussing that would you not accept that never in the history of humankind have people of that persuasion been better served. Better served by law, better served by by uh, society's approach to everything. Would you not agree with that? I think that there has been some progress, but it is we're only at the start of that. I mean, if you if you think only a few years ago that David Norris was taking Ireland to the European Court of Human Rights because we had legislation basically. But that was a few years ago. See, I had a fantastic experience this year, like a young man. Fantastic number eight, right? So you can imagine a number eight in rugby. He's beefing, bang, wallop and tackle and everything. And that young man uh, dresses as a different gender. And he's 12 years of age. And the other, I never, the fact that I never knew it was a clear indication of how the other 14 players in the team had accepted him, how the parents of the other 14 guys in the team had accepted him. And, and I was incredibly moved by that when I then saw him dressed as a girl. And I said, you know, and I'm not going to identify in any way, this is a fantastic thing for that school, for that club and for those boys. 
definitely. And I think that... So the fellas in, or women in Oxford University, as the Vice-Chancellor said, should just get on with it, Karen. I take your point that definitely the, the environment has changed for those of, a, of, of, of an alternative sexual orientation. But the problem is, is that there are still, and particularly in academia, academia is, is light years uh, behind a lot of the progress that has been made in other social uh, settings. That's is run by men, I suppose, is your point. Well, I mean, I hate to disagree with you, George, so I'll have to agree with you on that point. <laughs> but it is the case, well, and we check know... Check with the lovely Ingrid on the question <laughs> of academia. We do that. know that there's a gender discrimination problem within universities, and there's also a sexual orientation discrimination problem, and there's many problems within universities that we do need to tackle. So it's a great step that you've talked about in terms of that rugby right. player, but we need to go further. Okay. But uh, you, you know better than me. Uh, was it, I don't know whether it was St. Augustine or somebody, but there was somebody, some saint or other, was very involved in the whole idea of university education. And in medieval times, isn't that right? Isn't that where the great growth of the university came? In yes. medieval times, yes? yes? Yeah. And the idea that you went there and it was a mind-opening experience and all that. Yes. Like, when I went to college for the first time, the most, uh, the biggest single advantage was you go to the movies on a Wednesday afternoon because there was no Christian brother to beat you over the head and tell you you couldn't go. Yeah, and it was so, cheaper too. Yeah, but, but what I mean is, we, we didn't, it was as simple as being able to go to the movies, whereas in fact, the idea of university education is about that whole mind-broadening experience. That guy who plugged British soldiers north of the border for the IRA, taught me incredible amounts about about life and law. So I differentiate between the fact that he was a terrorist, mm -hmm. a self-professed terrorist, mm -hmm. and a law lecturer. I differentiate between that in my head. I mean, we all have our personal experiences and uh, whether we like it or not, it does come into our work. Um, there's no question about that. But I do think that the environment where you're teaching students has to be an environment where they feel safe enough to be able to speak. So if you talk about something like the Socratic method, which is what I use, so really it's about posing questions and getting students to talk and to draw yeah. out knowledge. But if you're in a setting where you think your professor doesn't hates you because of your sexual orientation, you're not likely to to do that and so your educational experience is going to be hampered as a result. Well you see the big worry for me that the majority of you and your colleagues in university education are all anti-white male and Catholic. You're opposed, totally opposed to Christianity and totally opposed to white males. Um, absolutely not. Feminism is actually a, a basically a, a paradigm about anti-oppression and George if you were being oppressed on the grounds of your gender or your ethnicity I'd be sticking up for you. No it's my age. Okay, well, age too. Primarily my age. And, and apparently, and of course, believing in, in a talking snake in the Garden of Eden causes immense trouble for the listeners. As always, um, a very welcome guest here on High Noon, lecturer at the School of Law and Government in DCU, uh, my uh, opponent on almost all matters, Karen Devine. Karen, thank you for joining me. Thanks, George. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. 
All right, welcome back to High Noon with George. As I'd expect, a huge reaction to Karen Devine here. Nobody has much uh, sympathy for all the young students in third level who are getting emotional about uh, a lecture they don't agree with. But I am really interested in the next topic because the Health Minister, Simon Harris, has confirmed that no consultant has applied for a licence to use medicinal cannabis to treat a patient. Now, with me is medical addiction specialist, Dr. Gareth uh, McGovern. Dr. McGovern, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. And I may have put a H in there inadvertently. <laughs> it's Gareth. Gareth, yeah. Yeah. Gareth McGovern, from your clinic is in Dundrum, isn't it? It is, yeah. Dundrum yeah. Main Street, it's, yeah. It's the... Priority, yeah, Priority Medical Clinic, yeah. Yeah, Priority Medical Clinic in Dundrum. And you're an addiction specialist. Now... Mm. Why has nobody applied for a license to prescribe cannabis when there was skin and hair flying about the fact that we hadn't done it? I don't know definitively the answer, to be honest. Um, I I obviously work in the medical community and um, there is a scepticism. I don't share that scepticism, but there is a scepticism among the medical community about the evidence underpinning medical cannabis and its uses. Um, And... I don't think in the eyes of many people, sadly, you can divorce the illicit connotations of cannabis and the medical connotations of cannabis. And I think, you know, doctors by and large, I I hope they don't mind me saying this, are a fairly conservative bunch. Um, So I I think their view would be they would prefer to rely on conventional medicines rather than something like this. Okay, no, actually is. But, I mean, if I went into you and I said, you know, I've got this pain in my hip and I can't get rid of it, I've tried everything, and then you say, well, listen, your last chance saloon is medical cannabis, right? And then I start thinking, hold on a minute here, this is something I smoke. Uh, How do I know I'm not going to jump off a 10-story building if I take this stuff? So I would actually say, no, thanks very much, Dr. McGovern. Mm. Now, presumably doctors might as well feel the same way that the, your point, conservative doctors would yeah. say, I'm not going there. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, in order to prescribe any medication, you're certainly going to look for some evidence that it works, and you're also going to sh- look for evidence that there isn't any harm. Now, if you look at medical cannabis, it's been widely used in the United States of America. Doctors, you get a recommendation off your doctor. There are dispensaries. And the evidence over there is that there are people getting great benefit out of this for a wide range of um, uh, conditions. And it seems to me that there doesn't seem to be any fallout of that. All right. But when you say a wide range of conditions, mm. I would have thought it was a narrow range of conditions that there are already um, medicinal uh, prescriptions that you could get for a wide variety of conditions. Yeah. And then there's this number of conditions where you have to, and they were the kind of people protesting outside Dole for instance, who have uh, conditions that could be helped by medicinal cannabis, but they couldn't get it. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, there are a huge wide range of conditions that are treated very, very well by conventional medicine, but there are some that sadly are not. Um, And if you look at something like, and it's not a condition, it's more of a symptom, chronic pain, um, that seems to be one of the ones with the strongest evidence base for medical cannabis. Now, interestingly enough, the HPRA, 
have decided that uh, whatever conditions will uh, it will be used for, chronic pain isn't one of them. Now, the HPRA is the old Irish Medicines IMB, Board. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Now, and they regulate medicines in Ireland, okay? Now, the, the, the thing here, this chronic pain... Is, is I had a lady, I interviewed a lady and, and with chronic pain. In fact, I've interviewed a number of people with chronic pain over the last couple of years. I mean, it's an appalling condition because awesome. it is chronic. And mm. I mean, it just never goes away. No, no never I, goes away. I mean, one can't even imagine what it must be like to have pain 24-7. It's awful. Um, um, some of them are for recognised conditions that sadly just aren't, aren't optimally treated. And others have pain that nobody's very very sure what the underlying cause is now if you're in that sphere and you pain is horrible nobody yeah. likes to endure pain not let alone acute pain but chronic pain having it all the time or most of the time and conventional painkillers which come with some s serious side effects some of them there's a medication or some people have disputed whether cannabis is a medication it's really a plant with a, a number of constituents in it but this is the key to this you're quite right. People have tried all sorts of uh, remedies that have not worked. This is, for many people, an option of last resort. The question then arises is, is it harmful to those people or is it harmful to anyone else? And it seems to me that the evidence suggests it isn't. Well, why? I mean, we're, I'm, I'm asking for an opinion, which you may or may not want to give it, doesn't matter. Why would the Irish Medicines Board, therefore, not regulate cannabis for chronic pain when it seems to be one of the primary reasons for using it in the first place? Good question. Uh, I'll answer it as best I can. I, I, the short answer is I don't know, but possibly because there is this feeling that if you make medical cannabis, again, I don't share this view, but if you make medical cannabis available for chronic pain, people will come in and say, oh, I'm in pain to get medical cannabis. Now, this is the key. The suggestion there is that they're using, misusing cannabis for its uh, illicit properties. Medical cannabis doesn't, most of it doesn't have any THC, which is the psychoactive compound. Some of it does in piddlingly small amounts. But, but the American experience, which listeners are telling me rather than my experience of it, but, but I have read enough to know, that in the states where, the states within the states, if you know what I mean, the states where medical cannabis is freely available, the actual legal use of cannabis is therefore dropped, which would seem to me is people are actually going to dock for it prescription Absolute, to smoke it. Absolutely true and there is a suggestion that the, in, in, in that happening then that a lot of the um, drug related deaths are falling as a result of cannabis being made available. You must remember when people have chronic pain it does predispose them to a lot of other things. Alcohol abuse. I treat a lot of people in my own clinic who misuse alcohol and pain is one of the big triggers that makes them misuse alcohol among other things. But the thing here is, though, we're, we're, we're now, in a way, almost like dipping our toe in the water of an argument should it be made legal in the first place, aren't we? Because mm. it, the worry surely must be of people like the Irish Medicine Board or whatever, I don't know either, but the worry surely must be that if we, the more we allow people to get this on prescription, 
the more it's going to become routinely available. Therefore, we might as well legalise it in the first place, and we don't want to do that. Yeah, I, 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 to be honest with you, George, I prefer to keep those two sides of it slightly separate because okay. I don't believe that medical cannabis is really open to abuse. I don't think there's enough in it. For, I mean, cannabis has never been more widely available in Ireland. People are growing it themselves. They can grow to any great strengths, the whole lot. Um, never been more widely available. The importation of cannabis is hardly needed in this country now. It's so, so widely available. Medical cannabis is, 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 is specifically in the sphere of medicine as far as I see it. This is for people where conventional medicine has, for whatever reason, failed them. Now, my guest is Dr. Gareth McGovern of the Priory Clinic uh, in Dundrum. He's a, a medical addiction uh, counsellor. Dr. McGovern, there's, there's an important point here, because you're a medic. I mean, you're mm. not like a PhD. You're, yeah. you're a doctor uh, of medicine. And you're treating people uh, with uh, addiction problems. Mm. We know there's drug trade. There's people getting shot every day now as part of this drug trade. I don't know anything about it. But but cannabis is no longer a kind of illegal substance in that way. I mean, if I can grow it in my back garden, <laughs> I'm hardly slipping down yeah. uh, Grafton Street at 2 a.m. in the morning trying to get it. Is that what it's like? Cannabis isn't part of what we would call the drug trade, therefore, is it? It's it's significantly reduced. It's okay. still there, obviously. There's still people who will go on the, the black market and buy, buy cannabis. But it's much more among communities now who sort of grow cannabis. And, tr and, and it's not even a matter of trading between themselves they, they they will give cannabis to people who who they know you know it's not it the drug wars as you as we know it in this country really are largely fueled by cocaine and heroin all right however though uh, and um the the issue of cannabis there is two things which will concern everybody you know when the, when we have this discussion one that it becomes addictive and two that in fact you start off with cannabis and then you finish up with cocaine heroin or whatever what about they are the traditional arguments against legalization aren't they uh they are um the gateway theory i suppose yeah. is I don't know if it's been disproved, but I don't think there's any great evidence that the gateway theory. I mean, I work in um, heavy end heroin addiction treatment centers. And if you look at those patients that I treat, um, it, it would be a misunderstanding of the social kind of aspects of that drug to say that the reason they got onto that drug was because of cannabis. Now, if you go through their history from the start, they will say that they took tobacco and they took cannabis. But it wasn't the cannabis that I would say lead, led to, to, to heroin. heroin. Heroin addiction per se, um, it has, has multiple causes. And I, I you know, right. the, as I say... But uh, just I want to stay with cannabis because no consultant, this is where we started, I go back to where we started, according to Minister for Health, no consultant has applied for a licence to prescribe medical cannabis, mm. okay? Yeah. Uh, for the reasons we're trying to tease out that would essentially be a conservative thing and people have all the kind of worries that maybe the ordinary layperson has about cannabis. But go back to my fear, like if I come into you now, George comes into you, and my fear is that if you prescribe this to me, I might jump off a ten-story building. I, I I don't accept that. Um, okay. I, I would. You you would reassure me. On I, that, I would reassure you? you on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I would obviously take a history, and I uh, like like most things, I would ask about things like tobacco and alcohol and all that sure. sort of stuff. Sure, sure. But if you look at the actual medical 
compound that I'm going to now... Because this famous THC is missing. Is it's missing, saying? and there is a lot of studies. There's a, there's a study done by, a, by an Irish um, a consultant in Toronto, uh, Blahine McCoy, I think her name is, and she's looking at uh, doing re- trials in relation to C, uh, CBD based products with some THC to see what the extra benefit is. Because there is anecdotally um, uh, evidence that a small quantity, very small, much, much less than what you would see okay. in the, um, the street. Um, right. Well, look, I'll save the con- consultation with you. Don't smoke, <laughs> don't drink, don't gamble. Uh, you know, perfect uh, person, really. Uh, and no pain, other than the normal stuff that 76-year-olds uh, get. So I'm, I don't need medicinal cannabis. Bill Hughes is popping in next with a song that was probably written under the influence of cannabis. It's High Noon with George Hook. My thanks to my guest, Dr. Gareth McGovern of the Priory Clinic in Dundrum. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.